Would you please turn to Jeremiah chapter 3? Jeremiah chapter 3. And uh, our text for this evening is found in verses 1 through 13. That's as far as we'll get tonight. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 in our text. Jeremiah 3 verse 1 says, They say, If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again. Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see, where have you not lain with men? By the road you have sat for them like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. Will you not from this time cry to me, My father, you are the guide of my youth. Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things, as you were able. Now there is great significance in repeated words or phrases in the scriptures. And so I often say that it is wise to be aware of these repetitions for they hold immense meaning to the passage being studied. Take, for example, the word backslidings, since it was used in the last chapter. Even though it was only used once in chapter 2, the the theme of backsliding carries over into chapter 3 to the extent that we see the word backsliding used six times here in chapter 3. Israel and Judah are called sisters three times in verses 7, 8, and 10 of chapter 3. And we'll see why in just a moment. But the most important word found throughout chapter 3 of Jeremiah is the word return. And when used in concert with the word backsliding, we are given the sense of God's heart in the matter of His chosen people who have strayed far off the path of righteousness they were called to be on as a, as a light to the world in general and, and a light to the Gentile nations in particular. The first to find themselves in trouble with the Lord for their unfaithfulness was the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember that the nation of Israel, which had been united by David and under Solomon, split into two nations after Solomon's foolish son, Rehoboam, became king. The northern tribes were called Israel, and their capital was Samaria. The southern tribes were called Judah, and their capital was Jerusalem. But for the backslidings of Israel, God brought the Assyrians against Israel to chasten and to discipline her. All the while, Judah watched. And what was Israel doing? Judah is called to watch Israel. Because a hundred years previous to what we are reading here in the time of Josiah, 
Israel, the northern kingdom, has been taken captive. Now this is just a lot of preliminary here, so you can gain a little bit of an understanding. If you've been with us from the beginning of our study in the book of Jeremiah, you realize that Jeremiah has been called to bring judgment to a nation, to the nation of Judah. But God is saying to them, you should be seeing what happened to Israel for the same kind of sin. So in verse 1 of chapter 3 then, with that in mind, it says, They say if a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again. I want you to notice how he's using this particular phrase, or, or this particular thought, as far as marriage and divorce. And then he says, would not that land be greatly polluted? Not so much a person, but a land. So speaking of a people here. Would not that land be greatly polluted, but you have played the harlot with many lovers? Yet return to me, says the Lord. Now that particular, uh, that particular uh, admonition is really toward Judah. And the Lord through Jeremiah is returning to that metaphor of marriage that he had used in chapter 2. If you'll go back to verses 1 and 2 of the, of the previous chapter, Jeremiah 2, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, notice the next phrase, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. So you take that phrase, the love of your betrothal, and you realize that that is stating uh, this picture that God is, is giving them, this image of, a, of, of, a, of an unfaithful wife. And then in verse 20, there is another reference to that when he says, For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not transgress, when on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot. So that gives indication of what they became as, as uh, going from a, a wife of God, in a sense the picture, and then going off to play the harlot with the gods of the other nations that surrounded them. But now he introduces the subject of divorce, whereas in chapter 2 he mentions uh, the picture of marriage or the metaphor of marriage, now he mentions divorce. And the law of Moses, which we can call the Mosaic law, permitted a man to divorce his wife, but it didn't allow him to marry her again. And this is taken from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, and you'll see one reason why this is, this is being brought up here. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her. Now, understand that that uncleanness is not talking about adultery, is not talking about some kind of, of uh, uh, fornication uh, against the husband, because if it was, and of course the law that applied to adultery, which was the stoning to death, would take place. So this, this uncleanness is something different than all of that. It says, if she's found no favor in his eyes because he's found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and become another man's wife, 
and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, and, and this is a very sad picture, isn't it? Because here's his wife going from one place to another, another person to another. And this was, this was the problem when Jesus is confronted with the issue of divorce. So then it says, Then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land, notice, which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Now you see the, the, the difference in all of this, or the distinction in all of this, is that when God is using this particular aspect of divorce in the marriage between God and, his, and Israel, or God and Judah, is that they didn't go to be married to another husband, but God you know, went out and played the harlot, which you understand that means that they went after all other gods. Now, God knows the heart of man. And to allow that, which, which uh, you know, in other words, the, the remarriage, to allow that to occur would only promote, or it, or it would only degenerate into what could best be described as wife swapping. And again, that particular problem actually was, was being presented to Jesus at one time. Doesn't the law say that a man could write a, 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 you know, a writ of divorce? And, uh, and of course, Jesus said, but what about the heart, you see? Why was divorce even brought up? Before the hardness of men's hearts. Not to take and, and say, you know, you don't like the way the wife cooks the, you know, the falafels. That you're going to move on to, you know, send her off to somebody else. But it was something about the man's heart. And God knows the heart of man here. God knows the heart of his people. God knew the heart of those that he was telling, this is what is happening here. I'm going to write you a certificate of divorce. God is saying that to his people. But there's something that you have to understand here. What the Lord is saying here is that Judah had played the harlot in that they were married to God and yet they were going after other gods and other lovers. They were committing spiritual adultery and loving it. It wasn't just a matter of hiding. It was loving what they were doing. And still, look at the love of God for His people with all that they had done. The Lord says, yet return to me. Which is significant as well because certainly God is saying, come back to me. They weren't going to link themselves to other people. They were just loving this harlotry with other, other gods. But he says, you return to me, we'll dissolve this, this writ, as it were. And then the Lord paints a disturbing picture of their actions in the next four verses. In other words, this is now, you know, we're, we're starting to get a lot of more detail as to what they were doing to have judgment come upon them through the prophets, especially Jeremiah. So here's the disturbing picture of their actions. Look at verse 2. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see. Why to the heights? Because it was in the heights where they, where they hid, as it were, their, their places of worship of the other gods. 
Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights of the sea. Where have you not lain with men? In other words, where have you not played the harlot? In other words, just about every place. By the road you have sat for them like an Arabian in the wilderness, which, which by the way, uh, was, was, was you know, fi- kind of figurative language of saying, you know, that's where the, what the robbers did, you know. The robbers just lay in the wilderness waiting to pounce on someone. It says, and you've polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Now remember, these are the same people who had followed Josiah in the reforms that Josiah brought. But when Josiah died, all that went to nothing. So then in verse 3 it says, Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. Now, notice the next phrase in verse 3. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse, refuse to be ashamed. And, 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 and the, 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 the forehead of the harlot being revealed as something of, a, of, a, of an act of shame. The covering of the head was, was a covering of humility. It was a covering of being a part of someone else. You know, the uncovering of the head was saying, Hey, I'm a harlot. So the harlot's forehead, it says, You refuse to be ashamed. There was no shame in what they were doing to them. And then in verse 4 it says, Will you not cry... Or, I'm sorry, will you not from this time cry to me, My father, you are the guide of my youth. Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. So they went after these gods and they sought them out to fulfill their lustful desires. Because as long as they were worshipping other gods, they, they weren't following what the law of God had to say concerning you know, their holiness, concerning their righteousness, concerning the way that they were to live their lives with their families and, and everything was to be right before God. Now they went after lustful desires. If you were worshiping other gods, you were also participating, participating in all of the, the, the sexual connections that, that were going on in the worship of other gods. By the way, that is the reason why adultery or, or uh, you know, adulteries and fornication are always connected with idolatry. If you look at idolatry, let's say you look up the word idolatry in, in, in uh, you know, in the concordance or on your computer Bible program, you know, you look at idolatry, many times you'll see where idolatry is placed together in alongside with a lot of these sexual practices. So, in the fact, in the previous chapter, by the way, the Lord likened their activities, if you remember, last week, to wild animals in heat. God had every right to reject His people because they had abandoned Him, not in order to marry another husband, you see, but in order to play the harlot with many lovers. The people had gone to the hills and, and built shrines dedicated to foreign gods. They, they had acted worse than even common prostitutes who at least waited for their lovers to come to them. These were worse, in a sense, worse than prostitutes because they went out to the people. They went out after these gods, I should say. Judah had pursued false gods and repeatedly committed spiritual adultery with them. And because of their actions, God withheld the rain from them. In verse 3. Notice what had been prophesied many years before as one of the things that God said would happen if His people turned from Him. 
Deuteronomy 28 verses 23 and 24 says, And your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust from the heaven. It shall come down on you until you're destroyed. If the people turn from God, that's what's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. And so that should have been a sign for them to repent and to get right with God. You remember what the scripture says in the New Testament? Who seeks after signs? The Jews. The Jews seek after signs. The Greeks after wisdom. So here was a sign. Were they seeking after signs? Evidently at this time it didn't matter. Throw all kinds of signs at people. They weren't going to listen. They were going to do their own thing. They were going to do what they wanted to do. Now, I'm talking about the people that were chosen by God to be His people. They decided to do what they wanted to do. So that should have been a sign for them. The rain stopped. They should have known the Word of God. Josiah found the, the, the Scriptures. You know, they found a copy of the Scriptures. And that, that was one of the, the, the reforms. The people began to hear the Word of God. So they would have had the Word of God. But did they hear what the, the Word of God said to them? should have been a sign for them to repent and to get right with God. But instead of getting right with God, who did they turn to? They actually turned to Baal. Baal. And one of, the, one of the things that Baal was the god of was the god of rain. Isn't that interesting? Instead of turning back to God, they turned to Baal, the god of rain. And what a sad day it is when the Lord brings judgment to awaken a people or a person out of their sin, and instead of repenting, they come up with a plan on their own to get out of the situation. I mean, what a tangled web we oftentimes weave for ourselves. Rather than go to God, rather than go to the Lord who we know created us, who made us in His image, who gave us His Son, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and die for our sins, to shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins, to die, to rise, you know, be buried, to rise again from the dead, to give us eternal life. How oftentimes we forget that. We set it aside. And we keep weaving a, web, a web of entanglement in sin. It's worse and worse and worse. Kind of reminds me of the story I was reading about. A pastor shared this story about a man that, that, you know, at a prayer meeting every week he said the same thing. Every week he had the same prayer. Every week he was saying, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, please remove the cobwebs from my heart. Please remove the cobwebs from my heart. And people were getting like, oh man, you know, he's going, here we go. Here comes the guy with the cobwebs again. Please remove the cobwebs from my heart. And finally one guy got, stood up and he said, and Lord, by the way, would you also kill the spider? <laughs> well, isn't the spider the one that weaves the web, the cobwebs? Oh, you know, kill the spider. <laughs> That's the problem sometimes. We want to deal with the superficial, but we haven't come to the heart that says, Lord, I have to surrender that spider.
Instead of feeling disgrace, instead of feeling ashamed, instead of feeling embarrassed before God, their, their hearts were stubborn, their hearts were hardened against God. So, so despite the punishment of God's judgment and discipline, the people refused to repent. And another reason for the people to repent is that they, uh, they had become hypocritical. How often had they prayed to the Lord, even calling Him Father, as you see there in verses 4 and 5. Will you not cry this time to me? My Father, you're the God of my youth. Will you remain angry forever? I mean, you know, they even used the word Father. And yet all they did was give lip service to Him. They, they thought his, dis- his discipline would be brief. Oh, He's not going to, you know, do more than just kind of slap us on the hand. They thought of God as an indulgent grandfather who, who was too good or too kind to punish them. They felt His goodness and His kindness would overlook, indulge, and even condone their sinful behavior. That's what they were thinking. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Or verse 5, will He remain angry forever? Will He keep it to the end? You know, that's their thinking. Oh, He's not going to do that. He's, he's a good God. But you see, they're not changing their heart. So they're thinking, well, I guess he must condone. No major judgment's fallen on us yet, so I guess he's condoning it. Please don't think of God as that way. We're the ones that judge ourselves more than anything else. The consequences that come are consequences of our sin. God desires for us to turn back to Him. There's even one translation that interprets verse 5 this way. It says, Will He be angry forever? Will He be indignant to the end? But then God says to them, Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. You've done all the evil that you could. That's the way people are living their lives today, sometimes even in the church. Oh, is he going to be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Ah, he's, he's too merciful of a God. And yet, they do all the evil that they can. Please don't take the silence as God ex- God's acceptance. For one day he will judge. One day he will judge. So this would now be the conclusion of Jeremiah's first message to Judah. And he begins his second message to the nation in verse 6. It says, The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? Now again, notice what what he says. Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? I'd underline backsliding Israel. Notice how many times it's mentioned. Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. Underline that. God giving giving Israel an opportunity to repent. Return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. Notice, Judah saw that they had not... Follow the Lord. That they had disregarded the Lord. 
that they had disregarded his call to repentance. Judah saw it. Remember, a hundred years before this. They get, you know, they get in trouble with the Lord. Verse 8. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, notice, backsliding Israel, notice how many times we see that. I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. When that should have been the time for them to say, you know what, they have just disregarded the Lord altogether. And he has written them off with a certificate of divorce. We need, to, we need to be very concerned about that and do something about what we're doing. But they didn't do that. They didn't even fear the Lord. It says, Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass, through her casual harlotry, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. That's a tremendous picture. We've often talked about what they worship, what they, you know, what they had before them when they were worshiping. Worshiping stones and trees. Worshiping idols carved out of stone, carved out of trees, carved out of wood. Stone and wood that cannot hear, cannot see, cannot speak. And yet for all this, her treasured sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. In other words, they're just pretending. They're playing lip service. They're going to temple. They're going to, the, you know, in other words, they're going to church. They're doing the church thing. So it's all pretend. Remember when you were kids? Y'all have to remember when you were kids. You're not that old. When you were kids, you, you, you wanted to play grow up. You know, growing up, you, you know, you got it, you know, girls, you got into your mother's closet. Boys, you got into your dad's closet, I hope. Dad's closet. You got into their closet, you know, you put on their clothes that were a bit too big, but you, you know. In those days they had hats, you know, the nice little, you know, then you put the tie on, you put the, out the shave. Did everything, you were pretending. This is the same thing about pretense. They didn't come with their whole heart to God. They just played church. Or they played temple. They played with the sacrifices. Well, in this whole section that I just read, verses 6 through 10, the Lord through the prophet is giving the southern kingdom of Judah an object lesson here. When, I, when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., because of their wickedness and because of their idolatry, Judah witnessed this divine judgment. And the warning was that if Judah continued down this path, they would also be taken into captivity. Nevertheless, the children of Judah refused to learn from Israel's destruction. And they refused to turn from their sins. You see, God had divorced Israel and put her away. Now think about this. This is how tragic this sounds and, and is. God had divorced Israel and put her away. Israel became part of Assyria and the northern kingdom was never restored. 
as a kingdom it was no longer a kingdom and yet how many times did the Lord wait patiently for Israel to return to him but they refused and they continued in her idolatry and you look at verse 7 and it says and I said after she had done all these things return to me how many times do we see God saying that how many times return to me but she did not return and her treacherous sister Judah saw it and again we see how rich God's love was for Israel but we realize in verse 8 that God's patience and God's long suffering had come to an end Israel is taken into captivity and Judah observing all of this instead of repenting and turning to the Lord their God just says that won't happen to us that's not going to happen to us I tell you what that is That is a heavy-duty thought. Because young people say that today. Too often. That won't happen to me. Being involved in law enforcement chaplaincy. I've, I've had too many times to go to a home in the middle of the night to tell a mother or a father or both that their son or their daughter was killed in, a, in an accident or you know, a high-speed collision. Kids evidently don't read the paper or don't read the news or at least the ones who uh, haven't been to the funeral of their friends. And they are saying, you know, well, that won't happen to me. Because the next day... There they go, zipping in and out, motorcycles, cars, whatever it is. Paying no attention to the law, paying no attention to the signs, paying no attention to those enforcing the the laws. And then it happens again. But they say, it won't happen to me. It won't happen to me. And worse, when we see verses 9 and 10, an even greater truth is exposed. It says, So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. This is a greater truth that is exposed here. And I know that we've covered this because in the last couple of weeks we said that in obedience to King Josiah, the people cooperated with his reforms and outwardly they put away their idols. But what they did was only pretense. It was all superficial. It was all shallow. It was phony. It was outward, but it wasn't in the heart. God wanted their whole heart, but what was their attitude toward God? God wanted their whole heart. They want us, you know, God wants us to come into this place with our whole heart to worship Him. He wants us to come with a whole heart, desiring to praise and to worship and to bless and to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Not just in this place, but even as we walk out the door, because the Bible says that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Wherever we go, He goes. If Jesus is on the throne of our hearts, as we say, he was when we received him into our lives and he goes with us too the whole heart 
There's nothing uh, so damaging as, as thinking that there is half-hearted Christianity. God wanted their whole heart, but what was their attitude? Go forward, if you will, in Jeremiah to chapter 12. Go to chapter 12, verse 2, and look at what it says there. It says in verse 2, You have planted them, yes, they have taken root, they grow, yes, they bear fruit. But notice the last part of the verse. It says, You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. You're near in their mouth, but far from their mind. They do the talk, but they don't do the walk. They do the talk, but they have no thought of God. That's, that's damaging. That's dangerous, isn't it? You talk about it, but you don't believe it. And the mind being connected to the heart. Turn to Ezekiel 33, verse 31. Ezekiel 33, verse 31. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. What a sad picture that is, because, again, we're dealing with that very same thought in the church today, of so many people who are half-hearted, in their devotion to the Lord. Maybe not even half-hearted. There may be some people who come to church without a heart at all for God. You know that even in our day and time, when political leaders claim to be born again, yes, I'm talking about political leaders that are in the news today on a daily basis, when political leaders claim to be born again and say that they are willing to promote evangelical causes, going to church, reading the Bible becomes, you know, th these things become the in things to do. But you do have to wonder how sincere these politicians really are. True Christian faith has never been popular. True Christian faith. I mentioned that today as well when I talked about that pastor in India. True Christian faith has never been popular and the road that leads to life is still narrow and in many cases lonely. Who are the political leaders courting today? Democratic convention is going on this week. The Republicans are going on next week. What block of people are, are, they, are they trying to attract? Are they trying to stir the hearts? the evangelicals or the Christians as it were now, I don't know about the Democrats you know they, they, they talk about interfaith this and interfaith that and they've got all kinds of people doing in, you know invocations and benedictions and all and some of them you know will even do it with a little bit of powder and a little bit of this and a little bit of that because they're letting everybody in and they're saying we need to be all inclusive but the Bible tells me something Jesus said I am the only way I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm not saying that the Republicans are any better. If they have the same heart, if all they're doing is wanting to court a vote, but they don't want to really believe what, what the Bible has to say. 
This is why we say to you that we need to pray for our country and we need to pray for what's going on with this political uh, crisis. And the vote is coming up in November. That's just a couple of months away now. At the end of this, you know, the end of this week, that's it. We're out of August. We're into September. Man, time's flying, isn't it? Are we being discerning about what's going on? Because again, I've, I've heard one political candidate say they're Christian, but they believe that you can come to the Lord in many different ways, but that's not what the Bible says. So anybody who says that isn't a true Christian. Honestly. Based upon what? Based upon what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You sound good. Well, we want to be inclusive. A few more hundred thousand votes. But it doesn't stir my heart. And to think that one of the main platforms that's being pronounced this week has to do with the killing of innocent children, babies, in abortions. Let's think about that for a minute. The Bible's about life. The Word of God's about life. The things that God has given us is life. And that's not just a problem in the Democratic Party. Republicans are struggling with it too. Pro-choice, pro-life. You see? Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, He said, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go, who go in by it. Remember I said that true Christian faith has never been popular and the road that leads to life is still narrow. In many cases it's lonely. Oh, the broad way that leads to destruction. Man, many go on it. You're not going to be lonely there. But notice, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Verse 14. So what is it that God wants? God wants our whole heart. God still wants our whole heart. And He doesn't want us to come to Him half-heartedly. He doesn't want us to come to Him half-heartedly. One of the key phrases of Psalm 119. Y'all are familiar with Psalm 119? It's the longest chapter in the Bible. And it concerns one of the key phrases Things, one of the key phrases, one of the key themes of Psalm 119 is the whole heart. The whole heart. Let me read to you. Let me see. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six verses out of this particular Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 2. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with the whole heart. Psalm 119, verse 10. With my whole heart. I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Psalm 119, verse 34. Give me understanding and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Psalm 119, verse 58. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. In other words, I asked, I pleaded with you with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. Psalm 119, verse 69. The proud have forged the lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. 
Psalm 119, verse 145. I cry out with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I can assure you that that pastor and his church in India, in the midst of all of this, and even in their scattering from this destruction that was coming upon them, that they have stayed close to God because they have worshipped Him with their whole heart. If something can get us, and the enemy will work on this with, a, with us, the enemy will work against us, but what he wants us to do is even the littlest thing if we can find any little doubt to say, you know what, I, I don't know if I can trust God. I don't know if I can believe God. He didn't give me what I asked for. He didn't give me what I was looking for. He was, you know, I tell you what, you have been duped not only by the enemy, but you've been duped by, by an American gospel. I tell you this. It doesn't matter what we will have to go through. Will we stand with the Lord with our whole heart? Will we believe Him and will we trust Him with our whole heart? At this juncture in our text, God speaks to Jeremiah, making it clear that the sins of Judah were worse than the sins of Israel. Look at this statement. What have we heard today? We have heard that Israel committed harlotries before the Lord. We have heard that Judah, because they should have seen what had happened to Israel, they should have not, but they went ahead and did and continued in it. As they did. So notice verse 11. Then the Lord said to me, Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. And you're thinking, How can that be? How can that be? How can Judah be more wicked than Israel? Well, for one thing, Israel didn't try to cover up their sin with a cloak of righteousness by trying to look religious. That was their greater sin. God despises that kind of activity over a person who just lives in sin. Israel was just that. Ah, well, we did it. Yeah, we, <laughs> we're in sin. What was Judah doing? Oh, we're not in sin. We're okay. God's not going to get us. He's not, you know, I mean, it's, it's not going to happen to us. Whatever. They saw what happened to Israel. Israel went into captivity. They said it won't happen to us. So what does God say? Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than, and treacherous, than treacherous Judah. I mean, even in the New Testament, we see this referred to in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, when Jesus speaks to the church of Laodicea, and He says, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Notice, because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. I've seen guys on TV, I've seen preachers on TV, boast of the, the numbers of cars they have, boast in, in, in the numbers of houses that they own. What are they saying? I'm rich. I've become wealthy. Stealing from the people. I mean receiving from the people. I have need of nothing. 
But what does God say? What does Jesus say? He says, but you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You know, this brings us back to the reason that Judah and Israel are called sisters. The Lord made Jeremiah's message more personal by comparing the two nations as two sisters for the simple reason that there is a much closer connection to the circumstances of God's chastening and God's discipline. The Lord wanted Judah to take a good look at backsliding Israel and Judah could not ignore what had happened to them. Now, that's between Judah and Israel. God says, look at Israel. What has happened to them? Don't go that way. Return to me. Instead, they continued in their harlotries. So judgment is going to come upon them. But I want you to consider, if you will, what the New Testament says about this very same issue. It's a personal matter, you see, when we know of backsliding. God has made us a community of, of brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Yes, we're a holy nation. But more often than not, Christians are referred to as brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ and in the family of God. As brothers and sisters, we cannot ignore what happens to backsliding believers. We have a close connection to the circumstances of God's chastening of those backsliders. We have a close connection. Why? Well, Paul is the one that really put it clearly for us in Galatians 6 verses 1 through 5 when he said, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. In a sense, he's saying, put yourself in their, in their shoes. Wouldn't you want to be rescued from this problem, this trespass, <coughs> by somebody who cares for you? And then he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he has nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. But if one is overtaken at a trespass, you who are spiritual, do you as a believer in Jesus Christ today consider yourself spiritual? Not in the sense that you are over-spiritual, in the sense that you're better than everybody else, no. But that you have a connection with God and with Christ and with the Holy Spirit to have wisdom given by God to help someone in that kind of need. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. James says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You see, what happens in all of this is that these backsliding brethren are a witness to us to remain with the Lord. If we see somebody backsliding, we don't want to go with them. God said, Judah, look at Israel. They have backslidden and they've got into captivity. You don't want to go with them. They become a witness to us. And it should have been that way for Judah. And eventually we are to also be a witness to the backslidden to return to the Lord. Judah should have been there to help Israel come back to God. 
Instead, they became worse because they were playing the harlot and they were playing superficially with God in the temple. So what the first half of this chapter teaches us is that Israel was in fact an honest backslider. (laughs) Because they didn't try to hide it. While Judah was a hypocritical backslider. I mean, these are the hardest to reach because they think they're okay with the Lord. So what does God now say? And let's close with verses 12 and 13. He says to Jeremiah, go and proclaim these words toward the north. Toward the north. Who's in the north? That's where Israel was. He says, return backsliding Israel. You see, there was a, there was a remnant still in Assyria. A remnant of, of, of Jews that needed to come back to the Lord. So he says, return backsliding Israel, says the Lord, I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord. I will not remain angry forever, only, but here's the condition here, only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice. In other words, confess. That you have done these things, says the Lord. Israel was already in captivity in the north, in Assyria. God had divorced them. And now we see God calling them back with one condition. They needed to return to the Lord, acknowledge their iniquity and confess their sin. And the Lord would forgive their sin. I tell you, what a merciful God we have. What a merciful God we have. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper. What was Judah doing? They were covering their sins. So it says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. 1 John 1 9, you know this, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even as Christians, we sin and fall short. Would you not agree? Even as Christians, we sin and fall short. And while our salvation is secured in Christ, nonetheless, our fellowship with the Lord can be broken. So if we go back one verse in 1 John, let's go back to verse 8 and read verses 8 and 9 together. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. Do you see now the importance of getting beyond this hypocrisy of saying we have no sin, we've not done anything wrong. God evidently must be condoning because He's not, you know, turning us into little piles of ashes. And a lot of people think that, you know, they can get away with things because nothing's happening to them right now. But, but you see what they're experiencing without them knowing it. They're experiencing the mercy and the long suffering of God. Now why am I doing this? Because there is a verse of scripture that talks about God stretching out his bow, waiting for the right moment when judgment will come. You see, until that time, we live in the day of grace where Jesus Christ has already died on the cross, shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, and he's risen from the dead to secure for us eternal life. And this is what we would rather respond to than this.
the outstretched arms of Jesus who says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You see, when we hear it say in verse 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, the word confess in verse 9 literally means, listen carefully, the word confess in verse 9 literally means that you are going to say the same thing as God says. You are going to say the same thing as God says. In other words, you agree what you are doing is wrong because God has already said that it is wrong. You are in agreement with Him, acknowledging to the Lord what you have done is wrong. And let's close with that thought. And let's close with what David said in, in Psalm 32. For David the king wrote in Psalm 32 verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And we know that that was the sin that he committed. Actually, the, the, the sins of adultery, fornication, and murder with, you know, with Bathsheba and with her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Listen, the idea here in David's statement is that God is standing with forgiveness. God is standing with forgiveness and as soon as we confess our sin to Him, His forgiveness is extended to us. I mean, what a great and awesome God we have. What a great and awesome God we have. You know, this study, just in these first 13 verses, what we're going to try to do next time is go from, from verse 14 on into chapter 4 uh, and, and you know tie that all together. But, but what we've had here is not so much this... this you know, tremendous weight of, of admonition or, or even condemnation. All there was was the exposing of the sins of Israel and of Judah. Israel's sins should have been a warning to Judah, but Judah didn't take the warning. Yet, how many times, how many times, you see, going back to those words that are repeated time and again, how many times do we see the word return? Return to me. Return to me, says the Lord. Return to me, and I will restore you. I'll throw away the certificate, the writ of divorce. You see, when God has to write a writ, <laughs> we're talking, you know, did he, did he mess up? No. Because he's perfect. His people chose to go the wrong way. But the great and glorious encouragement is that he says, forgiveness is with me. You come to me. And I'll forgive you. My, my last statement to you all is, what's hard about that to understand? And what's so good about holding on to sin that God says, I'll forgive if you'll just come to me. And if that sin is eating you up, if that sin is killing you from the inside, it's time to surrender it to God. It's time to kill the spider that caused all the webs to form. Let's pray.